Welcome to Research Insights, an occasional podcast from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. We're talking today with Finn Hudlin, winner of the 2004 Nobel Prize in Economics. Our topic is the Copenhagen Consensus, which is a framework for responding to the world's biggest problems. Dr. Hudlin is a panelist of the 2008 Copenhagen Consensus, and he's also a professor of economics at the University of California in Santa Barbara. He's visiting the Atlanta Fed to discuss a working paper and speak at the bank's public affairs forum. Dr. Hudlin, thank you for joining us for this podcast. It's an honor to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. My first question is, please tell us briefly, what is the Copenhagen Consensus? It's a framework for trying to answer a very important question, and that is, if you had $50 billion per year to spend, let's say, over the next five years for the welfare of nations, how would you do it? Uh, The criterion is which projects or which solutions would give the highest benefit-cost ratio. And uh, I was a member of the panel in 2008. This was a repeat panel. It was done first in 2004, and I was brought on board as a replacement for someone who just couldn't make it. I had actually participated in 2007 as well in a similar event covering Latin America only. The one for 2008 was meant to cover the whole world. Very good. And can you tell me briefly, what were the findings and were there any particular conclusions that surprised you? I don't think any of them surprised me, at least not in a major way. The findings turned out to be somewhat different in, for the Latin American event compared to the whole world. The Latin American event was somewhat colored by the fact that Most Latin American countries are more developed than uh, many countries in, say, sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia. And so uh, they would deal with, among the solutions, would be things like a fiscal framework or organizations to promote uh, consistent policies, in addition to um, maybe the predictable ones like providing uh, support for, because Many people are very poor and in very poor health and so on. In the case of the 2008 event for the whole world, the solutions were much more colored by, by the poverty of many nations. And the, uh, I suppose I could just mention the one that ended up highest in that event. The highest priority was micronutrient supplements for children, especially vitamin A and zinc. It turns out to be such an incredibly cheap uh, solution, and the potential benefits are tremendous, and so that ended up at the very top. There was also a similar one called micronutrient fortification of iron and salt iodization, presumably to be done in schools, and that, that's another one that's very cheap, very, uh, very effective if it can be carried out on a grand scale. Now, you asked about surprises. So I suppose you could say that these are solutions that are, it's not clear that the long-run benefits are so great. Suppose we come back in five years to, suppose these nations have, some of these nations have implemented such solutions. Chances are that many of them will have a new cohort of children in the same uh, dire situation and then uh, it would be repeated. And so uh, some solutions focus more on the long run 
and one of them was removal of trade barriers, the idea being that, well, the experts to whom we listened as, as a panel, uh, they presented numbers, very convincing numbers, that uh, by such removal of trade barriers, the uh, nations would grow and presumably then become in a position to take care of many of these problems themselves. So you have short-term and long-term benefits to the various solutions that you're proposing here. Yes, and that's taken into account. We are supposed to look ahead and look at the benefits. Actually, we, we, with the help of the experts, the way this worked was before we met in uh, grueling events of three days in a row, or uh, in the case of Latin America, or four days in a row in the case of the whole world event, experts had been assigned to write solution papers uh, where they provided their assessment of the benefit-cost ratios and so on. And then uh, another expert was assigned to challenge the solution paper. And they were present uh, to speak with us and present their findings. And uh, in their their charge was to take into account long-run effects. In other words, you look today, but the idea is to look at the effects not just next year, but Uh, years into the future and to discount the benefits. It's a little difficult to know exactly what discount factor to use, but we were told, or they were told to try two different implicit interest rates, namely 3 and 6%, to get a a sense of both the short-run and the long-run effects. Was there a particular solution that interested you that you felt very strongly about? Well, I was a little surprised that I suppose I should preface this by saying that we as a panel were free to throw out solutions if we thought they were inappropriate. And they could be inappropriate simply because we didn't think there were enough numbers to back them up or uh, because it was so obvious that the benefits were smaller than cost that there was no reason to consider them. Uh, In some cases, we had discussions about throwing solutions out for, uh, well, the criterion is benefit-cost ratio. So that's benefits divided by cost. There were cases where uh, at least some of the panel members had a hard time thinking of a cost component. So you would divide benefit by zero, (laughs) effectively, and that would give you a very large number. But we decided not to be too hard-nosed about that. But the the, the solution of removing trade barriers actually created a little controversy because some panel members claimed that the costs were not so well identified, and uh, I was among those who, who pushed heavily for keeping that solution in there. Good. Do you have any thoughts on what can be done to advance the agenda of the Copenhagen Consensus, how we can find money to pay for the costs? Well, this is, this is mainly meant as advice to governments. The uh, Danish government was very much involved in paying for this whole process. It's not an inexpensive process just to come, come up with the, uh, with the rankings uh, it's a time-consuming, and uh, and you have to fly everyone over to Copenhagen and so on. Now, the Danish government is an example of someone who is very much 
interested in the outcome, and I would presume also the other Nordic countries, because they tend to uh, give aid. Uh, they're at the top in the world in terms of the percentage of GDP they give as aid, and uh, I presume they are very much interested in knowing where should we put this funding, but I would say that other countries should be interested as well. Nordic countries have give a high proportion of their GDP to aid, but GDP is uh, not very large in those countries. So clearly the United States, for example, with a much smaller proportion to government aid, the, the dollar amount is much larger. And, uh, and I, w- I would say that all, uh, all Western economies, uh, all developed economies should think hard about looking at these rankings and try to get ideas for how they can use aid more efficiently. Do you have any other thoughts you'd care to add about the Copenhagen Consensus? No, I I just find it a very important and interesting process, and I imagine it will continue from time to time in the future, maybe with different areas to look at. In fact, I know that there will be another event on a much smaller scale in uh, probably in August and September on the event of the next Kyoto round on climate change. And uh, my understanding is that there will be a Copenhagen consensus event with uh, probably a slightly smaller panel, but uh, one that will be run in the same way and try to come up with a ranking for what can be, what is reasonable to do about the global climate. And you'll be involved in that effort? It looks like it. I'm not an expert in that field, but that's not a prerequisite for being uh, a member. We listen to the experts, and we uh, assess the credibility of their findings, and then uh, we do as best we can to rank the solutions. Good. Well, I know that you're here at the Atlanta Fed to discuss some of your research. Uh, Is there any point that you'd like to make about the research you're working on or any other um, projects that are on your list? You're talking about research projects? Yes. Yes. Um, What I'm working on now is, I suppose, may surprise some because it's mostly monetary economics. I'm probably best known for my work in uh, real business cycles and on maybe on the timing consistency of policy, not so much. So that aspect of monetary policy fits with my past research. But to look at the role of, of money for questions having to do with business cycles or, or even for long-run inflation, that's something that um, until uh, maybe six or seven years ago was a little bit out of what I normally would do, but I I find it very intriguing to see the importance many people assign to money, and, and I'm always uh, a little puzzled by that because it's so difficult to find a credible propagation mechanism, a way for money to have a role for the real economy, and that's really the two most recent projects are uh, projects along those lines in monetary economics. Very good. Well, thank you so much for talking about your work and the Copenhagen Consensus. Again, we've been speaking with University of California at Santa Barbara economist and Nobel laureate Finn Kitlin. This concludes our Research Insights podcast on the Copenhagen Consensus. For more information on this project, please visit www.copenhagenconsensus.com. Thank you for listening, and please return for more podcasts.
Thank you.